0: you're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.church. Okay, today, um, Stonegate, I don't know if you know this, but we moved into our new home last week. Yeah, yes. After nine years of homelessness, Uh, we finally moved into our place, a place to put down roots, a place for us as a church family to make into a home. Uh, The Lord has just been so kind and so gracious to us. I can't walk into this building without thinking and recalling and just reminiscing over just the hundreds of miracles that the Lord has done on our behalf to make this possible. This has been a kindness and a grace from the Lord to us. And today what I'd like to do is to talk about uh, one of the potential pitfalls of having a home, of having a place, a, a pitfall of place. And to do that, Exodus 33 is the place where I'd like to kinda highlight that. In essence, Exodus 33 gives us a warning It gives us a warning of place. It shows us this pitfall of place. So if you've got your Bible there in Exodus 33, I'd love to take a look at this passage with you. And let me just first give you the context so you can kind of be caught up in the story that you're kind of engrafted into when you turn to Exodus 33. So if you remember the story of Exodus, it's one of my favorite places in the Bible. Whenever I want to just go to the Bible and read an extended section of the scriptures, Exodus is one of the first places I start. Inside of the the book of Exodus, in some ways you have the whole story of the Bible there. It's the Old Testament kind of picture of redemption And as the story starts, the people of God are in Egypt And they are oppressed in Egypt They're being beaten down and enslaved by the Egyptians And one of the things that the book of Exodus shows us Is that God sees us in our suffering He sees us. He knows. He hasn't left us in our suffering, but but he sees us in it, and he hears our cries for help in the midst of suffering. And uh, as you get into Exodus 3, 4, 5, and 6, God comes to the people of Israel, and he addresses them in their suffering. He frees them from their slavery. and and he brings them out of Egypt. And one of the stories that you get to see playing out in the, the, the story of Exodus is that God doesn't just save us from something. He doesn't just save us from those sort of ruthless taskmasters, from our slavery. He doesn't just save us from something, but he also saves us for something. He brought the people of God out of Egypt, and he brought them out of Egypt so that he could gift the people of God himself He brought them out from Egypt so he could give them himself and a place, the the promised land. But before God takes them to the promised land, they make a pit stop at Mount Sinai. And uh, Moses goes up to the mountain, And there he meets with God, and God gives him the law. This is like in Exodus 20 and beyond there. He gives them the law, the Ten Commandments and and, and more. God gives them the the law. And then in Exodus 25, uh, you know, Moses comes down after Exodus 20, he delivers the law to the people. Then Moses goes back up to the mountain to meet with God again in Exodus 25. But this time, when when Moses goes back up, it's not to get the law from God, it's to get instructions about the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle tabernacle is a huge Old Testament theme. tabernacle is the place where God's presence would meet with God's people. It's the place those two things came together. So God gives all of these detailed instructions to Moses about how to build the tabernacle. But Moses stayed up there for a while, much longer than the people of God thought Moses was going to be up there. So they got antsy. They thought Moses might have actually died in the presence of God up there. So they look at Aaron, they gather all of their gold, and they give all of their gold to Aaron, and Aaron, in just a moment of outright rebellion against God, breaking the second commandment, he makes for the people of God a golden calf, and the people of God, in place of God, worship this golden calf. So, God then puts tabernacle sort of instructions on hold. God comes uh, down through Moses. God comes down and addresses the people of God in their sin and rebellion. That's Exodus 32. He addresses them in their golden calf-making, idolatrous moment. And that's where you pick it up in Exodus chapter 33, verse 1. This is God's response to the people's sin. Verse 1, Exodus 33. The Lord said to Moses, depart. Depart. lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Now, that is an amazing text. Think about what's happening here. God comes down, and in response to the people's sin, God looks at at his people, the the people of Israel, and says, there's gonna have to be a separation. You and I can no longer be together. So, So sin does what it always does. It always separates every time. So, so sin is doing, it's separating work. God says, we can no longer be together. So, so think about what's happening. The, the people of God are going to be without the presence of God. But God looks at, looks at his people, looks at the people of God, and he says, but, but here's what I will do for you. I, I'm still going to give you the promised land. You, you can still have the place that I promised to you. This, this place is going to flow with milk and honey. That's a metaphor for prosperity. So, so God is saying, you, you can go into the place into the promised land, and in that place, you're going to prosper. And I'm even going to send my angel there among you, and my angel is going to do this work for you. This angel that I'm going to send among you is going to clear out the inhabitants of the land so that you can enjoy this land flowing with milk and honey. So so God's looking at his people and saying, you you can have the promised place. You can have the, the place, but it's going to be without my presence. I'm not going. Sin has separated. I'm not going. God is looking at the people of Israel and he's saying, I'm going to give you one of the most incredible gifts that I can give you. It's this long awaited gift. You've been waiting for this gift for years and years and years. I I first promised it to to your great, great, great grandpa, Abraham. It's this gift of a a place. I'm going to give you this gift. The only problem is it's going to be without God. I'm going to give you this place, but it's going to be without His presence. My presence. One of the things that this text does is it drags a question kinda to center stage and just like the people of God in this text are having to to work through it and address it, so too are we. It, it, It drags out this question onto center stage and here's the question that this text makes us consider. Would we be content, would we be okay, would we be satisfied having place without presence, Would we be okay with that? I, like if God came and God said, you know what, it's gonna be Christmas around here. I'm not just gonna bring you a gift. I'm gonna bring you my best gifts. Just think about what that might be in your life right now like the things you might be asking God for, his best gifts towards you. So maybe that's a home, maybe that's marriage, maybe that's kids, maybe that's prosperity. Like you want a little bit of that milk and honey. Maybe that's it for you. Maybe that's great health. Maybe that's great friends. It's great, you just fill in the blank on what some of God's greatest gifts, like the thing you're really begging the Lord for right now. Like the gift you would really like for God to give you right now. God is coming to them and in essence, he's, he's, staging this sort of hypothetical for us in this passage God's coming and saying I'm going to give you my greatest gift one of the greatest things I can give you some of the greatest things I can give you but it's just going to be gifts without me it's going to be gifts without God it's going to be prosperity without presence are you okay with that would we be content with having place without presence are we okay with that It reminds me of a question that uh, one author in his book, it's called God is the Gospel, of a question that he asked. And, And listen to this question. I think it gets right down into the heart of this text. He says it this way. The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. This is the question they're having to answer in Exodus 33, and it's a question we should answer. It's this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you have ever had on earth and all the food you have ever liked and all the leisure activities that you have ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties that you have ever seen, all the physical pleasures that you have ever tasted, no human conflict, no natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ weren't there? Would you be satisfied with the place If there were no presence, that's that's the core of the question. And I think it's a timely question for us as we move into a new place, a new home, it's a timely question for us. Would we be okay with a place without the presence of God? Now, we shouldn't assume the answer to that. We shouldn't assume it. Just because we know what the answer should be, it doesn't mean that it's the answer that would be. Right? So, so we shouldn't assume that we would answer it the way we should answer it. And there's plenty of places in the Bible that, that allow us to kind of have some fear and trembling in us when we're addressing this question, because there's plenty of places in the Bible that show people answering it wrongly, that should have answered it rightly. Do you remember the story of the rich young ruler? Uh, God comes to him and says, it's either your possessions or it's me, take your pick. Do you remember that moment? Uh, God is essentially framing it like this. It's either prosperity for you or it's presence. Which are you gonna choose? You can have the place, land flowing with milk and honey, you can have all that, or you can have me, what's it going to be? And notice that God didn't just say it was like a and, it wasn't an and question, it wasn't you can have this and that, it was an or issue. It was a fork in the road. Like, Like he created the moment when it, when the rich young ruler had to decide, are you going to go with prosperity or are you going to go with presence? And do you remember what the rich young ruler did? He couldn't walk away from his stuff to get God. He chose prosperity over place. So we shouldn't assume it. We should actually question it. Like, what would we? What? What? What do we want? What is it that we desire? And one of the angst that I just feel inside of me when I when I think about that question, is that so often what passes for for Christianity in our culture really isn't Christianity at all. It's just not. It's not Christianity. When people ask me, what is a Christian? My most common response to that question is to, to answer by saying, a Christian is a person whose heart is crying out with the psalmist in Psalm 42.1. As the deer pants for water, so my soul pant after God. That's what a Christian is. A person who wants God, a person who cries out with the psalmist in Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's no one, no one, nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That's what a Christian is. A Christian is a person who doesn't just do some like nice things. A Christian is not just a person who's kind of a a good person. That's not what a Christian is. A A Christian is a person who has been changed at the deepest levels of their soul, all the way down at the level of desire. A Christian is a person who actually wants God. That's what a Christian is. A person who wants Jesus, like when they fill in the blank, more than anything else in this world, I want blank, in that blank for a Christian is Jesus. That's what a Christian is. And we shouldn't assume it, but we should question it. A a Christian is a person who doesn't just see God as useful, but sees God as beautiful, as the thing that they want, The the thing. And that sort of longing for God is not mainstream. And I'm not talking about like in the culture, I'm talking about like in the church, it's not mainstream. Uh, Christian Smith wrote a, a book where he did extensive research. He's a sociologist. He did extensive research on how people see God. Like when they say the word God, what do they think? Like what fills in the details of that word God for them? And uh, in this extensive research that he did with college uh, students, this is inside the church, so college students and teens, this is what he found. These five statements summarize how, uh, what his research found in their view of God. Here are the five things. Number one, when people say the word god this is what they think a god exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life that's the first part of what they think so he's not necessarily intricately involved in kind of the knit and grit of life uh but he's more like a watchmaker who kind of has wound this thing up and has let it go number two god wants people to be good nice and fair to each other as taught in the bible and by most world religions So so the main object that God's after inside of a human being is to make bad people good people, to make good people better people. That's kind of the thing God's doing where the Bible actually presents us a God who is making dead people alive. But, But the way that most people see it is God is after just some good moral behavior. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. So it's a way of seeing God as God is there to give me the things that I need to kind of be happy and self-satisfied and to feel good about myself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God's needed to resolve a problem. So God, you can kind of just stay over there. I'll let you know when I need you. It, it's that sort of a view of God. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. So if you're a good person, God will be good with you. That's, that's the sort of five uh, statements that kind of make up what he found Uh, as people's view of God. And he he summed it up in three words. So he, he took it down from those five statements to three words. And here were the three words he used to describe our culture's view of God. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. So moralistic, God is about making bad people good. Therapeutic, God is there to satisfy our kind of wants and to soothe our sort of things that we think would would satisfy us in life. He's there for that. And deism, it's not a personal God. It's a God kind of over there and distant. God will let you know when we need you. Right? So that, that's the predominant view of God culturally and not just culturally out there, but culturally inside the church. And at its core, this is the problem with that view of God. It's a view of God that looks to God and, and the questions and the things that we want from God, it, it, it's a view that says, God, we're really more interested in your hand. Like you give us things, God, that's what you do. You're, you're useful to us. You give us these things. And it's a view of God that doesn't want the face of God. God, it's a view of God that, that's after his stuff, not himself. It, that, that's the dominant view of God in our culture. It, when presented with the, we can have God's gifts or we can have God, we can have prosperity in place or we can have his presence, it's a view of God that just gravitates and says, we'll take his gifts over, his, uh, uh, over God, we'll take his, his, his place over his presence. That's the dominant view of God in our culture. Now, let's contrast that with their response. Look at verse four. Here's their answer to to the question. What's it gonna be? Is it gonna be place or or is it gonna be presence? What, What is it? Here's their answer. Verse four, when the people heard this disastrous word, They mourned and no one put on his ornaments for the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now, I just want you to feel this text. Put yourself in this text for a moment and just feel this. When they, when they got word that the options were place or presence, when they got word that the, those were the two options, it, it's, we could have the, 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 the promised land, just not the promise maker. When, when that was the option, place versus presence, their response in verse 4 is, that feels disastrous to us. But they just fell to the floor and they mourned that. Now, if, if, generally speaking, if you wanna see how not to respond to God, all you have to do is go to the Old Testament and just watch the people of Israel, <laughs> right? Because they just over and over and over again show us that's not what you do. And, and by the way, it's a really humbling thing to know. They're really just a metaphor of us. They're just showing us how we so often respond to God. But if you wanna go to to one place in the Old Testament to see them get it right, like to see them respond to God in a way that is like, we should should run after that, we should do that, 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 that's a model for us, this is the moment. When they they heard it's place or presence, their response was, no, there is no way we're choosing place. It, it, that's, if it's place or presence, God, place is not the thing that we want. God, if that's the options, we want you, God. We want your presence, your nearness, your closeness. That's the thing we want. Th- that was their answer in this moment. and Moses just kind of comes out and says it outright in verse 15. Exodus thirty three fifteen. he says to God, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. I just love Moses' heart. He's just, he's just saying, God, you are the one thing we cannot go without. God, we, we are not moving if you don't move with us. If you don't go, we're not going. If you go, we're going. I, I just love Moses' heart in that. Moses knows that the presence of God is kind of the whole point of this thing. He knows without the presence of God, without God being with them and for them, that it is hopeless for him. Moses knows that without the presence of God, in verse 14, no one will find rest. And I just wonder how many of us need to find rest, like rest for our souls. Moses knows that without the presence of God, that's never possible. Moses knows that in verse 16, without the presence of God, they will not be a recognizable people. They will not be distinct. They have no chance of being like a light among the nations for for God. They have no chance of doing that. In this passage, the people of God are learning a fundamental lesson of what life with God means and looks like. And it's a lesson that we also have to learn. Stonegate, we, we need to learn this lesson. And here is the lesson God is teaching them in Exodus 33. That nothing with God is better than everything without God. That, that nothing with God. like We don't have a single thing, but we have God. That is better than the whole world without God. Yeah, that's great. The, the people of God are learning. God, God is taking them to, to a particular school to teach them a particular lesson. And here's the thing that he's teaching them. Home is not just a place, home is three persons. But, that home for the people of God is the presence of God. That's what makes it home. It's that God is there. I mean, think about the deep longings in our soul that we talked about last week for home. We all have those sort of deep, primal longings for home in our soul. And if right now God brought heaven down to earth, like Revelation 21 and 22 are happening, heaven comes down to earth, unless God comes with it, it would have no chance of satisfying our souls. No chance. That the whole point is the presence of God. Home is the presence of God. So now that's forcing the the question now upon us. That's their response. That's their answer to the question. The question now is Stonegate. What, What will our response be to that? What is your response to that question? When it's place versus presence, prosperity versus presence, God's gifts versus God, what is the answer to that? Do we see God as just useful to get things from or has he actually become beautiful to us? Someone we love and desire and adore. Do we see God that way? And I think it's just such a timely thing for us to consider. And this goes for any church We'll just apply it particularly to us. Stonegate, the moment we take our first step toward death, here's the moment, here's, here's the first step toward death is the moment our heart looks up at God and said, God, we, uh, we like you, but God, we're actually, we're doing just fine with this thing, th- this place, th- this amount of prosperity. God, we're doing just fine with this. and we can kinda take it or, or leave you, But God, this is what we're actually after. That's a church's first step toward death. But here's a church's, here's our first step toward life. Continual life, continual vibrancy is that every time we're offered place versus presence, our heart looks up to God and says, God, if there is one thing we cannot do without, it's you. That the one non-negotiable, That The one thing that we are close-handed with is you, God. We can do without all of these other things, but the one thing we cannot do without is you. Nothing with you, God, is better than everything without you. That's a step toward life. That's a step toward vibrancy. That's our step toward health. And let's not assume that every church chooses that. Just like the rich young ruler, there are a lot of churches who are just fine with a little bit of prosperity, a little bit of good things over here, God giving them a few great things even among their midst and just void of God. But so good, if there's one thing we need to continually bring to God, it is a heart that says more than anything else, God, we want you, the living God. Now the last question is really the big question of the text and it's where I want to finish today. The the big question of the text is how in the world is God's presence ever going to be possible for God's people? How is presence ever going to be possible? It's really the tension of the passage. Look at Exodus uh, 33 again, and look at verse 3. This is the tension of the passage. God says, you go ahead and go up to the place. You, You go get the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. Now, why is that? Due to the people of Israel's sin, here's the reason. Lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Sin separates always, every single time. And after reading a verse like that, it should cause us all to ask, how in the world is God's presence ever going to dwell with God's idolatrous, golden calf-creating, stiff-necked people? people like you and me. How is God's presence ever going to dwell again among a people like that? And in some ways that is the question that the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, seeks to answer is how is that ever going to be made possible? We looked at Genesis one and two last week. One way to think about what's happening in Genesis one and two is God's presence is being received right? So God, the homemaker, makes an inhabitable place, and he puts our first parents in that inhabitable place. He gives them a place to call home. It's a beautiful garden. God gifts them a place, but he doesn't just gift them a place. He also gifts them his presence. If you remember Genesis 2, it says that he walks with them. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, he walks with them in the cool of the day. God's God's presence is there. He he is there among the place, because God's presence is there. It is actually a home for the people of God, and when we talk about the presence of god this is just a good clarifying point we aren't just talking about god is like you know everywhere at all time god's omnipresent we're not talking about that sort of presence of god we are talking about god's particular presence his covenantal presence it's that sort of presence where god is there in a felt way among his people it's that sort of presence he's walking with them in the cool of the day god's given them a place in his presence and then if you remember in genesis 3 uh, God's presence was lost through sin. This is the, the just the disastrous effects of Genesis chapter three. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, ate the forbidden fruit, and in Genesis chapter three, sin does its separating work. Uh, it, it instantly presents this chasm and gap between our first parents and God, all the way to the point where they are, they are kicked out of, they're cast out of the garden, they're cast out to the east of Eden. And if you remember how Genesis chapter three finishes, it finishes with God posting up an angel to the entrance back to his presence and place. He posts up a, a, an angel there with a flaming sword, letting the world know that you are not coming back into my presence. So there we're left with how in the world will humanity cast east of Eden ever regain the presence of God? How in the world is that ever going to be possible? Well, in this passage, Moses, as a foreshadowing of a coming Jesus, shows us how it's going to be possible. He shows us. In verses 7 through 11, Moses goes out to the tent of meeting. This is where God would meet with his people. Moses goes out for the people, on behalf of the people, and stands in the tent of meeting, talking to God on their behalf. And this is what Moses says, starting in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people, verse 14. And he said, God said to Moses, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses said to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be made known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Now, let me just point out a couple of observations. Think about the end result of what just happened. The presence of God has been regained for the people of God. Verse 14, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. This is what God is saying now to his people. It was, if my presence goes with you, you're all dead. But now it's my presence is going with you. Now the question becomes, what is the means for that? How did that happen? How was was the, the possibility of the presence of God, how was that reopened? How, how, did, how was the presence of God regained for the people of God? Answer, here's how it was regained. It was regained because Moses stood in their place interceding on their behalf. If you back up to Exodus chapter 32, Moses looks at God and says, these people have sinned greatly. But, but he, he says, I'm gonna go and meet with you so perhaps I can atone for your sin." And then he, he tells God, he says, God, will you forgive them? But, but if not, let's do this. How about it's my life for, for theirs? God, blot me out. Just don't blot them out. The presence of God was regained. Now, now hear this. It was regained for the people of God, not because God was pleased with the people, but because God was pleased with a person, M- Moses, the man standing in place of the people. Now, what, what is happening there? What are we seeing ha- happening here in this text? We're, we're seeing Moses, like so many Old Testament heroes, so many of the Old Testament people we love to talk about, but we're seeing Moses as a shadow, as a pointer. M- Moses is the shadow and he's pointing us to Christ who is the substance. Now think forward to the New Testament for a moment. H- how is the presence of God regained for the people of God? Well, who intercedes on behalf of the people of God in the New Testament? His name's Jesus, isn't it? Who is the mediator for, for, for the people of God in the New Testament? Well, it's Jesus, isn't it? God is no more pleased with us in the New Testament than he is the Old Testament people of God. But who is he pleased with ultimately in the New Testament? It's Jesus, isn't it? If you want just a convenient way to summarize the good news of Jesus in four words, here it is Jesus in our place. Moses is pointing us to Jesus in our place. Just like Moses stood in their place, Jesus stands in our place. He lived in our place, He died in our place, risen from the dead on the third day, all, all to, to, to regain. And, and to make possible the presence of God inside of the people of God. And, and isn't it interesting on this side of the cross, it's not just God, you know, the presence of God being regained inside of that tabernacle over there or that tent of meeting over there. But, but no, the New Testament gets even better. It's not God making his home in a tabernacle or a temple. Because of the work of Jesus, now it's God making his home inside of his church the, the people of God, like God, God actually comes down inside of us, takes up residence within us and makes a home in our soul. That is how close, that is how personal, that is how near God is to his people now because of the work of Jesus. And, and let me close with this. I, I was lis- uh, recently listening to a guy talk about sitting down with a friend of mine who planted a church several years ago in downtown Fort Worth. His name is Jim. And uh, I listened to the guy talk about this conversation that he had with Jim, right at kind of the beginning days of planting the church. And if you've ever tried to start anything, it's so scary. Like when you try to start planting, I mean, when you, you know, do the whole church planting moment, you just know that you're in need of like several hundred miracles from the Lord, like in a row. You need that sort of like work from God. You have no idea if anybody's gonna show up. You just, you just don't know if it's gonna work. And, uh, and this guy who was sitting down with my friend, Jim, who was you know, planting the church, he looked at Jim and said, uh, Jim, how, how do you want me to pray for you? Uh, you probably need people. So you would pray for people. That'd probably be a good thing to pray. Uh, you probably need money. You're gonna have to like get a church off the ground and play. You're gonna need some money to do that. So uh, you mean to pray for money. And Jim looked back at him and said, uh, no, you don't, you don't have to pray for people. You don't have to pray for money. Here is the one thing that I would love for you to pray for us. Just pray that God would go with us. Just pray that God would go with us. And Stonegate, if there is one thing we should be praying for our church, one thing, if we could just condense it down to one thing, here it is. For the rest of our church's history. God, please go with us, please go with us, amen. Let's pray together. I want to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to speak to you and to press into you the things that would be helpful and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be, Be asking God there where you are, God, how would you want me to respond to this morning? God, what is it that you would want this morning? And for some in the room, <clears throat> what's needed in our response this morning is that first decisive step toward Jesus. It's that moment when we push our life, our chips fully in with Jesus. It's that moment where for the first time we turn from our sin and we throw our life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus who stood in our place, died for our sin. And we hold our life up to God saying to God, I am banking on and trusting in that Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection to regain your presence. I am trusting in that Jesus to to reopen up life with you. So God, here I am yielding. God, here's my life, it's yours. For for some of us, that's our response today, that first decisive step. Wishy-washiness is gone, indecisiveness is gone. It's that first leap toward Jesus. For others of us in the room, we need to pray for the presence of God, that God would go with us. And here's why that's important, not just just on a corporate church level, but like in your life, it's important. Verse 14, if you want rest for your souls, the only way, the only place that is found is in the presence of God. If we want to be a recognizable, distinct people, the the only thing that will empower that over the long haul is the presence of God. Some of us came in this morning and we're just in a season of suffering, life is so hard, like we limped in today that the miracle was just that we made it today. And do you know what we need in seasons of suffering? The presence of God. Like not just that God is in all places everywhere, but no, his particular covenantal presence to be felt in our souls. Do you remember in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Now, why is that? Because the psalmist says, because your presence is there. Because your presence goes with me. If we're in a season of suffering, the thing that we need is for the presence of God to feel more real than even our suffering feels. So, oh God, through the power of your spirit, would you do that in us today? God, would you do that? Would you bless us with that? God, we, your people, are looking at you today and saying, you're the non-negotiable. If there's ever an or in our life, that this or you, prosperity or place, gifts or God, God, we are affirming today individually as a church, God, that we choose you, that, that you are the thing that we want, God. Father, help us in your good name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.